Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. Good morning and welcome to the Ampex podcast. Today, we're very excited to have Demi Doreska as a special guest. Demi is with the University of Iowa. He is a he is the director of the Institute for International Business, Associate Professor of Practice for International Business and Entrepreneurship, and a Justice Fellow in International Development and Processes at the University. Demi has a master's in foreign service from Georgetown University, uh, grew up in Haiti, and has a very exciting story to share with us today. Demi, I'd like to start out with in your in your childhood, something that you think was kind of a defining moment that kind of led you to where you are today and um, created your passion to do serve service for the world and helping entrepreneurs entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you, Charles, for having me on uh, on, on 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 your podcast. It's it's such a pleasure uh, to be part of this great initiative. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I was born and raised in Haiti, and. Uh, I know whenever people hear about Haiti, what they see, uh, political tensions, political uh, strives, and poverty. Uh, there are other things in Haiti. There are good people in Haiti, uh, educated, smart people in the country, people that are trying to make a difference, people that are trying to make this world a better place. And uh, I was born by uh, hardworking parents. Uh, my, uh, my dad was uh, a self-employed guy selling you know, lottery for the States and, and getting a, a, a percentage on, on, her, uh, on, on, on what he was, uh, he was selling. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So we were a big family of nine, and I was the middle, the middle child. And uh, being a middle child, you, you kind of like learn a lot. You kind of feel that you have a lot of responsibilities, uh, a lot of uh, things that uh, basically fall on your back, and you are striving for success. You don't want to fail. You don't want to make mistake. So... With my hardworking parents and my dad, you know, getting up every morning at five and working the whole day, bringing food, putting food to the table, I learned right from a young age that you've got to work hard. You've got to earn everything that you need. You've got to fight for everything that you want to have in life. At the same time, you also need to try to make a difference. You need to try to make your community. And when I talk about your community, I'm not only talking about uh, where you live. 
I consider the world as a community. Right at a young age, I consider the world as a community. Before the age <clears throat> of the internet, I was you know, involved in world youth movement back, you know, growing up as a young, as a young child, you know, as a young, you know, teenager back in the, in, in the eighties, the mid eighties, as a teenager, I was part of the world youth group, you know, uh, uh, fighting uh, for the less of these, doing social justice movements, you know, talking, giving a voice to those that don't have voice. And, and, and I remember I used to read a lot of, uh, uh, stories about uh, Oscar Anonfo Romero in El Salvador, who basically was uh, a, a, a priest of uh, the liberation theology, which talks about social justice. How do you help this world become a better place for us all? At that time, there was no social media. There was no internet. You know, just reading from paper, reading books, and making my voice heard among other youth in my community in Lekai, Haiti, to really make this world, as I call this community, when I call community, I'm talking about the world, a better place for us all. So, so Demi, this is, um, this is interesting. You grew up in an impoverished country where there was a lot of injustice. And curious how you felt and how your family and siblings felt because you were obviously giving back and doing a lot and helping people not only in Haiti, but outside of Haiti. So how did it feel being a 14 year old and you know, getting engaged and serving others? Uh, that's, that's not something that every 14 year old does. A lot of them are scrape, uh, scrapping and fighting on the streets, trying to get, um, to get ahead one way or the other. So well, it's, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that, as I said, I was 14, 15 year old when I got involved in the youth group called youth for the world. And what we really noticed us members of that group, I mean, myself, I was privileged. I can say when I, uh, because I, I went to uh, a Catholic, you know, parochial school, and which was the top school in, in, in my town. And, but when I looked around me, I could see a lot of, you know, kids of my age or younger kids that were not going to school and that didn't have that level of privilege that I had, you know. So that's when we, we decided to, you know, be part of a movement, Youth for the World, you know, that uh, really uh, was promoting the, the liberation theology, uh, you know, from, you know, that uh, 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 Oscar known for Romero in El Salvador was promoting back then in, in mid 80s. So we decided to really start, you know, a, a, a school, a literacy school in the afternoon, in the evening that would welcome those kids, you know, to, you know, teach them how to read, to teach them basic maths, to, you know, to teach them uh, uh, some values and, and to really, quite frankly, provide them a space where they can evade, where they can escape, you know, a safe zone where they can feel like they are a human being. Because as, as, as you, you, you might know, you know, uh, child labor, uh, you know, uh, in Haiti is very, still very prevalent. And, and a lot of uh, those kids, they become domesticated kids working for, 
people, you know, cooking for them, uh, go fetch water for them, you know, go to the grocery stores or public market and bring foods or take a younger kids to school, et cetera, et cetera, clean the house, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those kids, that's what they were doing the whole day. So in the evening, when they find this two to three extra, the two to three hours where they can escape, where they can, you know, you know, be away from the servitude life that they have where they live, they feel happy to do that. And these are the type of things that I was doing uh, with some of my peers to make a difference. I mean, we didn't have the money to buy foods, to, to feed those people, to provide them, to send them to other schools. We didn't have the power to do that, but where we could help to make our world, our community, as I said earlier, a better place, we, 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 we tried to do our best. Well, you're still doing that today, Demi, with your work at the International Institute at the university. You've been working with entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa for over seven years. And why don't you tell us kind of what your big dream is, what your, your vision is for sub-Saharan Africa and how you serve entrepreneurs to teach them how to be successful and to grow viable businesses in a continent that is filled with rich resources. And I think in the next 30 years, Africa is gonna be a huge business development um, opportunity for the people of Africa, as well as international companies. The, the problem is there's so much corruption. <clears throat> there's so many influences that it's not always an easy ecosystem for these entrepreneurs to get up and going, but you're doing amazing work. So tell us about the dream and the vision and where, where you see it going. Definitely, and, 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 and there's a lot to unpack in these uh, questions. And so as you mentioned, you know, for seven years, uh, I've been leading the Mandela Washington Fellowship Program at the University of Iowa uh, uh, College of Business, TP College of Business. And the Mandela Washington Fellowship Program is the, the US State Department flagship program for the young African leaders uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And the program is administered by IREX, um, um, which is um, uh, uh, a big education uh, research institute based in Washington, DC. And, uh, and the fund for the program comes from the US State Department, the US government. The way the program works every year, the US government, uh, send the US embassies across Sub-Saharan Africa, send uh, an uh, call for applications to recruit young dynamic uh, uh, um, leaders um, uh, between the age of uh, uh, 21 to 35 in Sub-Saharan Africa. They usually receive over you know, 3,500 applications from all the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And out of that, they select about 700. So it's really the cream of the cream, you know, la creme de la creme, as I usually say, uh, um, uh, that, that got to be selected to come for, to, for this program. And then at the University of Iowa, we received 25 of them. You know, since 2016, we've been uh, uh, implementing this program at the University of Iowa. We receive a group uh, in leadership in business and, uh, they usually 
are um, entrepreneurs that uh, either have started uh, uh, their businesses or um, um, they have well-advanced business ideas that they want uh, to vet through the program. They spend six weeks with us and they would go through our rigorous venture school programs, which uh, help them uh, uh, with their business go through the startup process, you know, of, um, you know, how to uh, uh, use the business model canvas, how to do customer discovery, how to de-risk their businesses, talking to, uh, with the help of mentors, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end, they uh, learn how to pitch their ideas to investors so they can raise funds for, for their business. At the end of the program, and, and when they are in Iowa, they also meet a lot of uh, uh, business leaders. You know, they get to interact with people like yourself. You know, and that also help them continue de-risking their business ideas. You know, provide them really uh, 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 constructive feedbacks on how to be successful with their business. And 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 after the six weeks, at the end of the program, they go home. And when they go home, they are fired up. They are people that, they become people that want to challenge the status quo. They are questioning everything in the business settings, in the government settings in their country. They are the type of people that want to get rid of corruptions because corruptions uh, has become an impediment to their success as well. They want to use modern, clean business practices to be successful. At the same time, they want to impact the lives of their people. They want to impact their community. When I say their community, they want to come up with something that can have global success. When I, whenever I talk about community, as you know, I'm talking about the world. You know, they want to come, right. you know, they want to come with something that will have global success that will impact sub-Saharan Africa in the world. A lot, all of them, almost all of them. That's the way they think. They are, they are big thinker. And so we continue supporting them. Myself, I travel frequently to sub-Saharan Africa, continue working uh, uh, side by side with them to uh, uh, see how I can help them accomplish their dream, how I can help them live their dreams, you know, how I can help them come up with, you know, the bold solutions to, 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 uh, to, to the problems, the challenges that they are facing. And, and, uh, and as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, Africa is going to become in, in the next, the, the, in, in the next few years, I mean, you're talking about 30 years, it's not going even to take 30 years for, you know, what we used to hear about the Asian tigers back in the uh, late 80s, uh, 90s, mid 90s, late 80s to mid 90s, we're going to hear about those tigers in Africa very soon. And there will be more tigers on the continent of Africa than there were Asian tigers. I can tell you that. You're looking at countries like Kenya, Nigeria, Senegal, Ghana, okay, just to name these few, that I have several companies that have the capacity to become unicorns 
on the continent of Africa that have the capacity to become, you know, uh, uh, big, really big companies that will impact uh, uh, what's going on right now in the world. And some of those companies, I can tell you, they are companies that were started by Mandela Washington fellows. Uh, I am very optimistic with where the continent of Africa is, uh, is going. And I am very optimistic in the way that uh, the Mandela Washington fellows are really forging the trajectory of business on the continent, you know, getting, you know, playing a strong role in getting rid of corruptions, in putting good governance in businesses. This is really what I see. And, 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 and I'm so honored to be part of this movement that uh, these uh, 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 Mandela Washington fellows are really uh, taking on and 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 this is fun and 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 as I'm telling you, it's not going to be 30 years. It's going to be a lot sooner. That that's fantastic. I've got for our audience. I've got goosebumps uh, listening to Demi. Um, I've had the honor of working with Demi and his team over the last five or six years, coaching some of the Mandela fellows, um, following up. You know, you know, Dr. Lucy is doing amazing things with improving the quality of healthcare. And so many of these fellows, they, they're serving, they've got great ideas mm -hmm. and they're really trying to help others in need. They're trying to create jobs. They're trying to create sustainability. They're trying to create green farming practices. I mean, they're, they're really working hard and really innovating. Do you, um, how do you see some of the emerging technology trends with things like cell phones and uh, 5G and Starlink, where sometime in the near future, there'll be six, seven billion people with cell phones that are more powerful than computers were 10 years ago, and sensors and all these new emerging technologies that can drive up 10x the cost. How does that enable these young entrepreneurs and some of their businesses to really uh, develop scale and grow fast. It's, it's a game changer, uh, Charles. In, 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 in fact, you know, I would say 15, 20 years ago, getting a landline at your home in Africa, in many of the countries that I work with in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, was just a major, major issue. You would submit your application. It would take years and years. You followed up. Sometimes you would bribe, you know, the telecom company officials, and your bribe won't even get you, wouldn't even get you anywhere to get a landline in places, if, even in the cities, let alone in remote areas. I mean, that was non-existent in remote areas. The cities, I'm telling you almost impossible. And now with when the cell phone arrived and it be, people started getting cell phone, farmers in rural Kenya would be having cell phone where they can get in real time quotes on their crops to know when you know, to increase productions, when to decrease productions. 
when they can get in real time the weather on their phone, when they can get in real time news about their kids that go to school in the cities. And more recently, in the last uh, 10 years or so, sending money using technology. M-Pesa revolutionized in Kenya, M-Pesa, which is the mobile payment system, revolutionized the way financial transactions are being conducted. Is that like a blockchain Kenya. or it's, a it's, crypto? It's, or? It's, it's not a crypto. No, it's not even crypto. It's when M-Pesa started, it was just a simple mobile phone, simple, not smartphone, those simple, you know, mobile phone that you send a, a, a GSM, you send a message to your parents living in remote area. You said, I need, you know, uh, 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 200 shillings, the Kenyan currency. And then your parents send a code message to your phone that you receive the money and you can use, you don't even need to go to the bank or to a post to get the cash. You can use that simple message. You go to the grocery store. If your parents send you 200 shillings and you buy for 50 shillings, you send a message to that grocery store mobile phone. You pay them 50 shillings. That's it. And then when, when uh, smartphone arrived, then you know, Safaricom, which is the promoter of M-Pesa, created the app so that you can use, you know, uh, 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 the, you, you, so you can use your, your smartphone to also do the transaction. But the majority of people in Kenya using mobile payment, they are not using a cell phone. They're not using a, a, a smartphone. They're using a simple cell phone no smart, not no app, nothing to conduct to, to conduct business. Well, to help put things in perspective, what's the average uh, annual income in Kenya? Approximately. Approximately, I mean, it. Uh, you would probably. I mean, I I don't quote me on that. The, the average would probably in the three hundred, four hundred dollars. You know, don't I, I don't have the exact data. Uh, 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 and and when you go. You know, to more remote area, there are people that are living, you know, uh, below what the UN call a dollar fifty or two dollar a day, which is really uh, what you call the extreme poverty. Yeah. So it's when you keep that in mind and think about these entrepreneurs that are trying to change the quality of healthcare and bring higher quality healthcare and higher quality delivery systems. Well, many of the 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 rural ag tech companies I've talked to, you know, the average farmer has two hectares of land and they'll um, have tomatoes or peppers or other crops and they all, they all come to maturity at the same instant in a mm -hmm. country. Then mm -hmm. you've got these big um, conglomerates, if you will, uh, local barons that almost pay them nothing for their crops. So, you know, when you're talking to these entrepreneurs about how you build local um, 
processing capability where you can take the tomatoes and make them into tomato sauces mm -hmm. or tomato paste, where you can actually add value. Um, they're doing a lot of things, but they're starting with very, very low incomes and compared to the US and yet they're full of energy, they're full of optimism, they're working hard and their world is totally different. It is totally different. And then, and then to come back on the technology questions that uh, you, you asked me. So now when you look at farming, there has been some improvement. And I'm going to give you an example uh, in uh, you know, uh, uh, aquaculture in Kenya. There is uh, uh, this uh, company started by a Mandela Washington fellow called Aquaresh. And in uh, the lake region in Kenya, uh, um, uh, around uh, uh, Lake Victoria in Kisumu. So he started this um, um, agri-tech uh, 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 company, Aquaresh, which provides an IoT technology that help farmers in fish farming control the temperature of the water, know when to feed the, uh, the fish, know the type of feeds to buy, know the exact time to switch from you know, the feeds for babies to feeds for older uh, fish, et cetera, et cetera. And that sensor is put in the water and connect directly to an app to their smartphone 24 seven that can tell them, that can tell them when the fish, when one fish or two fish are in is in distress. So they can go exactly and find out what's going on in, in the water. If they need to change, if they need to change the water, if they need to do anything. So this is revolutionizing aquaculture in, in, in Kenya. And then using that same app, the farmer can keep track of its inventory for feed and can order directly using the app, can order feed directly from Aquaresh, pay using the mobile payment system that I just told you about, M-Pesa, and then ensure delivery of the feed to their farm. So, and this method is growing right now in the lake region in Kenya. And it's going to scale to other lake regions in Tanzania, in Uganda, et cetera, et cetera. And wherever you're talking about the blue economy, you know, lake regions, ocean regions, this, the same process can be used. When I tell you about, you know, I mean, unicorn, big ideas, ideas that can revolutionize sub-Saharan Africa and the world. That's one example of it. So technology is already Tec solidly rooted in, in the process. <laughs> exactly. Technology is solidly rooted in the process. So basically what farmers now they are trying to do, they don't want to rely on governments to bring solutions to them. This Mandela Washington fellow that I'm telling you about, he is a, a fish farmer. 
He called himself a fish farmer in the aqua, aquaculture in, in, in Kenya. And he is, he's using the skills. He's using the training that he, he got from us here at the University of Iowa when he was a Mandela Fellow to challenge himself, to bring solutions to the people, to, to the challenges of the people in his community. And the solution not only is gonna solve the problem in his region, but it's going to solve the problem in everywhere in South Africa that has, that has a lake region that has a blue economy. So how does he um, get his product to market? How does um, he use technology? I'm assuming most of the fish goes locally to local communities and bigger cities and restaurants and grocery stores and whatnot. Well, the way he, the way he does it, and, and, and it, it's, it's not only he's providing as an IoT solution to the farmers so they can do better fish farming, so they can have better yield. He's also providing them a marketplace. He's off taking their fish from them, have a bulking station. And then he's also having fish outlets where he's selling those fish. He's really getting those fish from the farmers and offering them a marketplace, a place to sell their fish. So he's infrastructure. He's got the tools yeah. to help fish farmers raise the fish, know how the fish are doing, know where they are in their life cycle, yes. know when to change the feed, exactly. know when the water temperature's it, too hot. Everything. And he's helping get um, those products to market. So it, he's got... Yes. An, a whole infrastructure for yes, basically fish protein to get it to market and to develop the whole community. Of you are system. saying you are using the right word, the protein. Basically, Aquaresh has the potential to help solve the protein issues in Kenya and Sub-Saharan Africa because this IoT solution. This marketplace that he's offering is revolutionizing aquaculture in Africa. And through the entire process of the value chain, by the way, because he's also partnering with some uh, 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 um, um, local government entity to, prove, to get finger links really kind of like a, a, a small, you know, fish to get finger, to grow fingerlings that he can provide to the farmers with the IoT, with that sensor in the water, control the water temperature, help them get better yield on, 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 on their fish, provide them feed, okay? And then from there, get those fish from them, offtake, bulk them, put them to the market, it's the entire, it's the whole process of the value chain using technology, using technology. I mean, this, this is a beautiful thing, Demi. And um, if you think about it, the, the story, the simple story is there's small entrepreneurs and business owners with ideas. And the Mandela Fellows in partnership, collaboration with the International <clears throat> Institute at the University of Iowa is taking these budding entrepreneurs and business people, you're bringing them to Iowa for four or six weeks. Um, you're, teach, you're, you're putting them through venture school. 
They're defining a business plan. They're doing financial projections. They're meeting mentors and coaches. They're pitching their ideas. You're teaching them all these basic skills. And then you continue to support them. But this is really a, a beautiful thing because what you and your team are really doing, you're a guide. You're, you're a guide that teaches them how to navigate the complexities of doing business in a, a poor country where there's a lot of con, uh, corruption, there's a lot of barriers. So how to overcome these barriers and how to succeed despite all the, um, the challenges that they face. So besides the corruption and the lack of government support, what are some of the biggest challenges that these entrepreneurs have that they uh, look to you for and need help with? Number one is fundraising, Charles. And uh, it's the investors of today, the private equity firms, the venture capital folks, they don't believe in these entrepreneurs. They don't think that they bring value to the table. They think they are too risky. And they think that they do not have ideas that can grow, that can scale, which is not true. These entrepreneurs are not micro-enterprise. So basically, they do not have access to, because they, what they are really looking for to scale there are people that are looking for $50,000, $300,000, $500,000. of them million, okay? Mm -hmm. But most of them looking for $50,000, $100,000 to $300,000 to scale. Basically too big for microfinance, but too small for private equity firm, for venture capital, Etc. Those those type of, of 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 funders. Does Africa have an angel network, or is there the, angels the, internationally that would do a fifty, a hundred thousand dollar investment? Some countries would have angels, like Nigeria, uh, would be the biggest one. Kenya has some, but not a lot. The I would say the the ecosystem, the entrepreneurship ecosystem in sub-Saharan Africa is still at its infancy, okay? So the angels, people with deep pocket that have a lot of money that could be the angels, they still don't believe in the young entrepreneurs. They still don't believe in them. So <clears throat> the ecosystem is not matured yet. I think there is a lot of work that remain to be done to create a strong entrepreneurship ecosystem like what we have here in, in the state of Iowa or in other parts of the US. So, so how, do we, how do we fix that? How do we provide access to entrepreneurs that need 50 to a half a million dollars? Well, what we've started to, what we've started seeing right now is the rise of impact funds, impact investors that are looking at Africa. And these impact investors are 
administered or they, they've been created by retired executives in the US who have worked in Africa, who understand the reality on the ground. They've spent several years either as business development for major companies in the US traveling throughout the continent, or they've had expatriate assignments uh, in Africa. So they understand the, the continent. They see the same thing that I see in Africa. So they decided to create impact funds. You know, some of those funds are to the tunes of 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, et cetera. And then they decided to, they've decided to, to invest in Africa. There are a few of those impact funds. And I've started to get to know some of them. Okay. And uh, they, you know, they have their criteria. Some of them would do loans. Some of them would do uh, equity investments. And they accompany uh, uh, the entrepreneurs uh, providing, you know, ad advice, strategy, growth, uh, uh, growth strategy uh, for certain number of years, et cetera, et cetera. They're not in it to really you know, kind of like we want you to grow fast and then we want to exit. You know, they're not in it for that. They want to accompany those entrepreneurs and then and, and help them grow. So I think that's the way this is going to go. I want to encourage more of those impact funds here in the United States. I want to meet with, you know, deep pocket individuals that are interested in understanding the reality in Africa so we can create more of those impact funds that we look at opportunities in, in, in Africa. Because as, as you know, I have a pool of 149 entrepreneurs that have project ready that would be interested in engaging conversations with uh, 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 investors. They're not looking for grants. They're looking for investments. They're looking for loans because they know they can get things done. So you've been doing this for seven years, Demi. What, how many of the 149 businesses that you've um, supported during this period, what percentage of those, or how many of those have had significant growth and scaled significantly and are really ready for, you know, like a series A investment? They're past the, you know, the feasibility and the proof of concept and the seed capital that are, um, ready to take it to the next level? Several of them. I could tell you at least uh, a dozen or more. So that's not bad. I mean, when you consider within seven years, you have, I have at least five of them that are making $100,000 in revenue per month. Okay. And I also have a few of them, I mean, two of them are in Uganda specifically. You mentioned Dr. Lucy earlier, but I also have another Mandela Washington fellow in Uganda in, in, in the healthcare sector, uh, Phyllis uh, Kuyamanda. She was mentioned or she was featured in uh, uh, CNN's program Inside Africa as one of uh, 
the dynamic women entrepreneurs in, 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 in Africa due to the device that she created, a hand scan, okay, that uh, helped, you know, uh, uh, scan uh, uh, pregnant women to, you know, when they, to see, you know, how the baby is breathing, how the baby is going, you know, et cetera. It's a handheld device mm -hmm. that can be used in remote acts in remote areas of Africa. With her device, many lives have been saved. With her device, you know, pregnant women in rural area in Uganda, you know, could see the, 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 their, you know, fetus breathing, could see the lives, could look, you know, it's a device that you can take and connect to a smartphone, connect to a laptop. You don't need uh, to have uh, the internet. You don't need, provided you have a laptop with, with a charger that's charged, you connect that device and you can do scan, you can scan. I mean, she's, you know, I mean, I'd like for you to see that features. I mean, if you probably don't remember Phyllis, you know, from, from Uganda, uh, when she was with us, it, we, I mean, we knew she had something that, that, that was going to revolutionize healthcare. Well, these, uh, I mean, these are exciting. Yeah. I mean, stories, but you know, I think <clears throat> Demi that you, you've had about 25 Mandela fellows a year yeah. for seven years. Yeah. And the, um, Except program. last year we had 24. Uh, yeah, so so the uh, the program brings over about a thousand uh, entrepreneurs a year from all over sub-Saharan Africa, mm -hmm. and they're going to multiple universities and colleges where they're doing entrepreneurial training. So you have a you have one cohort of many. So there is hundreds of entrepreneurs that have come through the Mandela Fellows program. And you just, you wonder about these uh, impact funds. And um, there's a number of very wealthy um, billionaires in different parts of Africa. Maybe, maybe some international um, funds could collaborate with some of the in-country people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, co-create co a fund that can help yeah. people around Africa, because it's, you know, at some level, you hear the exploitation, the expectation of uh, people in African resources, the mm -hmm. Chinese come in, they, they mine uh, diamonds, mm -hmm. gold, mm -hmm. metals, mm -hmm. they take them back to China, then when they're done, the environment has been scarred, mm -hmm. uh, they mm -hmm. don't really help with building sustainable infrastructure and helping the local community. So there's a lot of external um, countries coming in and just taking, taking, taking. And at the end of the day, when it's gone, the, the African people are still there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, um, the corruption in some of the countries and the governments doesn't, doesn't help this. But despite all that, the people are being creative and entrepreneurial and finding ways to solve their problems. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a great thing. So um, as part of the fellows program, you have students also, I think, that get involved with um, helping the, the entrepreneurs while they're here and maybe following up on developing business plans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you tell us how the um, 
the students that I will get engaged with supporting these entrepreneurs as well? Certainly. And, 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 and that's the beauty of our Mandela Washington Fellowship Program. We provide international business opportunities to our students through this program. I mean, do you remember when you were in college? You, you know, did, did you have an opportunity to work with companies that are based thousands, thousands of miles away from you? Absolutely not. Back in 1980, yeah. when I graduated from <laughs> Iowa, yes. there was no such thing. Um, well, this is what uh, <laughs> Iowa students, specifically TP students, are doing right now. And they've been doing this for over six years. We have a business consulting class. An online version of that course is reserved for our TP students, our business students, to work with Mandela Washington fellow companies that are based in Sub-Saharan Africa. So the students are learning to be international business consultant in the real world, working with real companies. Well, I think that's exciting. When you, you think of Iowa, um, we're a rural agricultural state. We have lots of row crops, corn, soybeans, and we have some big companies. We had the John Deere's of the world and the Rockwell Collins's and you know, some big international companies. But by and large, we're, we're kind of landlocked in one of those flyover states. Yeah, so yeah. this um, opportunity to get involved with entrepreneurs in 49, 50 different countries in Africa gives students exposure that they're not going to get if they only had a multinational international exactly. Exactly. So. So not only they are getting the business experience, basically working on marketing plans, social media strategy, you know, uh, 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 entry strategy, you know, growth plan, et cetera. They are, they are doing these kind of things for the Mandela Washington fellow companies. Yeah. At the same time, they are also learning how to cultivate a global mindset. They are also learning, they are also acquiring the cross-cultural skills that are very important to succeed in this world. I mean, I always mention the stats. I mean, as you know me, I always say 96% of the world consumers reside outside the United States. Two thirds of the world purchasing power is in foreign country. So is in foreign countries. So, so if you say that you are a business student in this day and age, and you do not provide yourself with the cross-cultural skills. You do not take advantage of platforms offered to you where you can cultivate that global mindset. How are you gonna call yourself a competitive student to jobs that are coming uh, for you when you graduate? 
You're how, not. How are you going to be able to compete with the European students that already speak several languages, that have already traveled to several countries in the world, including the most difficult places in Africa, to understand their cultures, et cetera, et cetera? How are you going to compete with the Asian students that know more of what's going on in the United States than you know of what's going on in Asia? No, they, they really can't, Demi, and that, that's a good point. And when you think about building international businesses, I built medical device companies that we built distribution in over 90 countries. And um, understanding geopolitical risk, cultural activities, it, it doesn't matter if it's Kenya or China or India, the framework and the process of how you look at a foreign market and how you understand that they all, their buying decisions may be different, their needs may be different and being able to access those market needs and then adjust your product service offering accordingly is critical. So it doesn't matter if it's an entrepreneur in Kenya um, or a multinational company, the, the concepts are the same and this experiential learning is gotta be key because if they're not uh, getting their hands dirty and getting out there and playing with it and trying to understand these challenges and they help them solve the problems. It's just reading in the textbook just doesn't do it. That's that's and, exactly uh, right. So I think it's um, a great um, addition to the program. How many students do you have working on entrepreneurial international business certificates? And, and well, I mean, we also have the international business certificates and and uh, um, uh, right now, we have about uh, uh, about 150, 160 students enrolled in the International Business Certificate. And, uh, but through the International Business Consulting uh, course, uh, the students don't have to be part of the International Business Certificate to take this course. So we've had over, uh, uh, over uh, 350 students, you know, uh, uh, taking... Uh, 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 the, the, the discourse, you know, working with uh, Mandela Washington fellows. So it's... Uh, Is it only undergraduates? Undergrads, yeah, 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 undergrads, yeah, yeah. So, but it's, it's, it's great experience for them. Really, really, I mean, I mean, I was, I, when I was an undergrad, I was an international business major. I never had this experience. I mean, I had an internship with a company locally, but I never had the experience to really work you know, uh, in, in a transnational, in a cross-cultural projects, never. So um, when you, so you've got an MS from Georgetown and basically international affairs. Yeah. Um, what did, what did you learn there and, and how did that help you? And how do you see what you're offering at Iowa uh, in terms of the student experience, you know, kind of is, is there any overlap? And oh, definitely. I mean, my focus at uh, Georgetown was mainly on international development and also international business diplomacy. So what, what, what does that mean? You know, international development, it's really the type of work that I'm doing with the Mandela Washington fellows, how you use business concepts, business approach to help developing countries, you know, grow to help developing countries 
move themselves from developing to uh, 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 emerging and even you know develop economies. So that's really what uh, my approach, you know, my focus was at Georgia. And international business diplomacy, it's really help government of developing countries prepare themselves or put their house in order so they can attract foreign direct investments into their countries, so they can build public-private partnerships, so they can store they can kind of like have or put in their countries conditions that facilitate private investments. Either those private investments are from locally grown companies, like the type of things <clears throat> the Mandela Fellows or the Mandela Washington Fellows are doing, or private investments from abroad. So that's really, you know, how do you use diplomacy to get business to grow? Okay, so that's really what I, and this is exactly what I'm doing at the University of Iowa. So if I recall, you're actually bringing some, um, maybe public health officials um, from institutions in Africa to Iowa City to help train them and develop them. Could you tell us a little bit yeah, about I mean, we, what you're doing in that collaboration? Definitely, and one of the things that we're gonna start doing or, and, or I've been doing it, but to a lesser extent, but we wanna grow that, is um, what we call the executive type training uh, for the community in Africa. And we've been doing that with Kenya uh, um, uh, for about three, four years now with uh, vice chancellors of universities where we bring them, we've been bringing them to Iowa so they learn about innovation, entrepreneurship and university leadership so they can bring that to their universities in Kenya. But recently, I've met with a, 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 a senior official in Kenya who uh, want to bring leaders in, in healthcare to the same program, but, but really focus on healthcare leadership, on uh, 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 leadership in, in, in time of crisis, leadership change, innovation, growth, you know, how to manage and, and, and stimulate growth within uh, 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 healthcare organizations and, and things like that. It's again, you know, uh, a way, you know, for, for me, you know, I always look at things in international business diplomacy. Mm-hmm. How can I help those government officials, you know, prepare themselves, think in a business way to build public-private sector partnership, to bring growth, within their organizations in a business way. You know, that's really how I see it. And, and then also, it also has the international processes. How do you bring the processes that we have here that we know that have brought us success? How do we share those processes with our peers, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa so they can really, you know, or get them and get them uh, move? So you're... You're part of your brand with the International Institute is um, working with African universities to teach their chancellors what's possible in terms of entrepreneurship, as well as working with the College of Public Health and looking at how they might take some some of the things we have yeah, yeah. developed 
in the States back to Africa. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming with the pandemic and the way things have changed. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Couple years that, yeah. Um, and we don't call that teach them. We call that share knowledge because um, we also going to learn from them. Got it. Okay. We, we really call that knowledge sharing and, and, and because, you know, those people, they are very smart people. They've done a lot in their countries, but they want to come here to share knowledge, to learn about our processes and to tell us how they are doing things on, on, on their sides. It's really that, that's the aspect. That's the way I see it, really. So do you help them eventually develop their version of a venture school where they're actually doing more entrepreneurial training? or No, on that? that front, they're not going to be doing entrepreneurial training for the senior level officials. What they're going to do is how to uh, create an entrepreneurship ecosystem, an innovation ecosystem within their organizations where people can bring forward ideas, bring forward innovations and feel welcome and find an ecosystem to incubate those ideas, to push forward with those innovations, create an ecosystem that can promote more public-private sector partnership, okay? Are they a potential partner in, in helping with these impact funds to bring- uh, They, they could be, because you were talking about how can we put together impact funds that can be a partnership between investors here in the, in, in the United States or in other developed countries and people in Africa? So that's, I mean, I think these people, they would be the exact, it would be a good group with whom we could have such conversations. And I agree with you, definitely. I mean, I think it helps to have, if you had an impact fund where you had some people on the ground in Africa that understand business, when you talk about private equity or when they get bigger PE firms, they, mm -hmm. they, they have some active oversight and governance. And um, I imagine some people wonder about how do you have government or governance in Africa mm -hmm. when they're mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, on a different continent? And, you know, how do you make sure that funds are invested wisely and are held accountable for results and all of that. So there's some virtual aspects, but technology should help facilitate definitely. those kind of things. Definitely, definitely. I mean, and, and technology and also um, uh, uh, the trust issues too. That's the way you start building trust. If you, when you get the local involved, you get to know them better you get to know them on a personal basis that's how you build trust and you start to understand the reality on the ground get the local involved at an early stage that's what i always tell people that want to get involved in, in any international affairs or any international business ventures so you've um Amy, the dean at the University of Iowa, has been very supportive, and you've um, been recently put as a direct report to Amy, and so you've been getting a lot more support from the University of Iowa for your initiatives. What kind of support do you need in the next five years? And um, I mean, maybe um, start with what's your vision for five to 10 years out? What would you like to see the International Institute 
become and be? And uh, then, you know, what kind of support do you need to get there? Well, uh, the goal is for the Institute for International Business is to really create an ecosystem at the College of Business where students, when we talk about student success, we see cross-cultural skills. We see global mindset. When we see faculty, we also see global mindsets. Staff, global mindsets. We want to create that ecosystem where we have the platform for each group, students, faculty, and staff, to cultivate that global mindset. That's one. Secondly, we want also the college, you know, we to be able to provide the trainings that we talked about, these executive style training that can bring global thinkers, global business leaders to our campus to share knowledge with us, to learn some of our cutting edge approaches to be involved, to, to, to approaches to be doing business in this modern age. And then we also learn with them, learn from them on their processes on how they are also getting things done. Then the third thing, to partner with international universities in sub-Saharan Africa and in Europe as well, to conduct research on the serious issues that our world is facing with respects to leadership change, leadership in, 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 in time of crisis, technology, how we use technology to impact the world. We talked about blockchain. We talked about artificial intelligence. We talked about you know, a, a, a cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. How, what role a business school can play in providing evidence-based approaches to technology, te- te- technology solutions, technological solutions to the challenges that we are facing right now to impact the world. Those are the partnerships that we want to bring. Let's, let's talk about you the know? technology yeah. evolution and the, um, the convergence of these exponential technologies <clears throat> as it relates um, to academic research, because these technologies are changing so fast that it almost um, researchers have, I would think, become more entrepreneurial where they could do evidence-based research that's going to come 12 to 18 months out, they'll start getting feedback because if it takes three to five years, Mm -hmm. the technology will already have morphed into something else and it'll be obsolete. So I think part of the university research mindset is um, it needs to be fast. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, universities 
have to be accredited in you know, the coursework, but you know, so many of these technologies are moving so fast. It's, um, I guess that's another question is, what are universities gonna do to get into the modern age with exponential change and be able to keep up with it and still be relevant? Because really what you're talking about is, um, is here today, and I always like to talk about Elon Musk. He looks at these uh, mega trends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He looks ten years out. Then he says, "What's it going to be in ten years?" Then he brings it back. Well, Tesla is not a car company. It's a, it's artificial intelligence. Exactly. It's it's exactly. Exactly. Machine learning. It's robotics. So, how do we create a research mode in business entrepreneurship that can keep pace with this? transformative change and still be relevant so do you have you know, well, well, that, the, the way i see it <laughs> i see academia and business sector partnership where the academics of the world work closely with the innovative companies and do evidence-based research for them because the companies, what's going to happen, they're not going to wait 18 to two years, 18 months, 18 to 44 to 24 months, you know, to get the results, to get the, 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 the evidence-based approach that they need. They are going to push the academics to really find more efficient ways to come up with their evidence-based approach. I see the more partnership you see between academia and business sectors to do evidence-based research, evidence to come up with evidence-based uh, uh, solutions, the shorter time it will take, I mean, efficiently, not cutting corners, the shorter time it will take for the academics to uh, uh, publish their research. That's the way I see it. I mean, I don't know about you, if you would agree with me. I mean, because I think there is not enough partnership between the business sectors and the academics on those researches? Well, I, I, I'll take the liberty to maybe make a small translational gap here. So when you talk about evidence-based research, um, I think if um, academics can actually help businesses apply these new technologies to real world application so it's, yes to me it's the application of technologies and new applications of technologies that um i, I struggle a little bit with evidence base but when you look at healthcare for example today they're working on technologies to print organs whether it's a heart uh -huh, uh -huh. A kidney a liver um crispr and gene editing um eliminating disease by going in and actually editing, editing your DNA mm -hmm. um, to fix the faulty um, coding. Mm -hmm. And um, there is so many technologies that are going to totally revolutionize healthcare in the next seven to 10 years um, that are going to eliminate disease uh, versus, you know, new pharmaceuticals. So it's coming fast. Mm -hmm. So my, my um, nephew just started med school at the University of Iowa and I was 
challenging him to start thinking about where's medicine going to be in 10 years, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then where do you want to play and what piece do you want to be part of? Because it's not going to look the same. No. Um, doctors are going to have artificial intelligence and machine learning that can process millions and millions or billions of bits of information and give them diagnosis that they could never process on their own. Um, so there's going to be new tools that are going to change the way medicine is delivered. Um, and this applies to everything, um, you know, with uh, decentralized finance, um, access to 24 seven banking where you don't have, it's not nine to five where mm -hmm, you have to mm -hmm, wait for mm -hmm. a banker to be on the phone. Um, you look at mortgage title insurance. Well, that'll be a blockchain where you won't have to get a title opinion updated to buy a real estate transaction. So you mentioned the internet of things. Well, you know, within the next decade, there'll be a trillion sensors out there. Everything mm -hmm. will be connected. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how does this change how we play, live and work? And, you know, it's very exciting, but I think academics um, will evolve quickly. And there'll be certain institutions and universities that get into this, you know, real-time application of new technologies and research because a 10-year study may no longer be relevant by the time they get it done. And again, what I've been saying is the, the, we're going to see the reality of this change when we start having more partnership between the academia and the business sector. Stronger partnership will push that change. This is where I see it, to be honest with you. And I think there is not that the partnership is not strong enough right now. Well, I think the opportunity for collaboration and partnership is going to be with a lot of the entrepreneurs, a lot of the young innovators. That's right. That's they're, exactly they're right. That I, I've yeah. got this problem. And how do we solve this piece of technology? Um, the gap. And, you know, it may not exist today, but in three years, it may exist. Yes. So how, do, how do we? How do we take this new supercomputing capacity and how do we solve this problem? Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, when you think about 10X, how do we drive out 10 times the cost? And I just did a, a LinkedIn YouTube the other day. It was titled, we've always done it this way. And it was kind of a, a wake up call to businesses that, you know, you have the opportunity to redefine and disrupt your business in the industry. But if you don't, Someone's going to come in with new new technology, and they're going to disrupt you. And yep. if they're and if they're at ten x the cost, and they're providing better service and better quality twenty four seven. We all know what happened to Kodak. That's there's, right. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of household brands and names that we all know that are going to go away because they were not open to looking at how do we disrupt our own business model with the next generation. And, you know, businesses have an S curve mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, you know, they get on a steep growth curve, then it starts to mature and taper. Um, and they need to know where they are in their S curve and what the new disruptive technology is going to be or the new model. And they, they can, they can redefine themselves, but that's, that's a whole thing about leadership and change management. That's and correct. exponential exponential change it moves so fast compared to linear change. And that's, um, 
an issue, I think, in society. Maybe we should talk about that. Um, you know, you deal with a lot of students in the rate of change in society. And, you know, they talk about quiet um, quitting and all of these other issues with attracting and maintaining employees and, you know, young people, they've got to be at some level stressed out about, you know, what's in it for me in this gig economy? Where do I fit and how am I going to play? So do you have any insights on that, Demi? Well, what I've been seeing in young people, uh, and because I have a 17-year-old myself who is getting ready to start college in the next year, they want to own projects. They want to work with you to design a project and then you let them run the show. They are not the type of people that you're gonna ask to be in one place every day from eight to five or seven to four, whatever you know your, your, your time thinks is. They wanna have the project, they work on it at their own time. If they wanna start working on it at 10 p.m. and finish at four in the morning, that's what they want to do. If they wanna start working on it early morning, take a break in the middle of the day and come back to it at night, that's what they wanna do. And at the end of the day, they want you to evaluate them on their results, not on the time that they come and show up to the office and you see them there in the office, you think they are doing things. No, they, you design, you just give them, this is the project you're gonna be working on. You are in charge of that project. You run the show, maybe once a week, we have checking meetings to check on the progress. But at the end of the day, we want results. We have a timeline, we have a deadline, we want results. That's really the way they want to work. And this is what I've seen when they don't have project. And I have lots of uh, students interns that have, that have worked with me, currently have uh, you know, two students intern. The way to get the best out of them is give them projects. Don't just have them come and making copies, answering the phone, you know, uh, and things. They will just come, sit at the computer, stay on social media, on their phone, staring at the computer. Give them projects. And you say, this is your project. You have this time that it's due. Check in with me on a regular basis once a week and let them run the show. So they want to be empowered. They want to be empowered. They want to be yes. held accountable. Exactly. They, they don't want tasks. They want project <laughs> yeah so they they um I'm, I'm assuming a lot of them like purpose too they want to do something that's going to make an impact and that's make the exactly world right they want to start something from ground zero and then build it and then they see the impact like if you give them a project on something that they know for instance i would give my intern a project say okay i want you this is a project we're going to work on we need to get an impact report from each of the Mandela Washington fellows that we've had. And then that impact report, I'm gonna use it to talk to our donors, to, to talk to a donor at, of the Institute for International Business. And I'm gonna send that impact report to them. They're gonna analyze it. And then they're gonna give me 
uh, one or two hours to meet with them, to talk with them, et cetera. And your report will be able to help me raise X amount of, they love it. These are the type of projects they want to have, but they don't want to, they don't want tasks. They want projects. Okay, so I'm, um, I'm thinking about entrepreneurial leadership in organizations. So if you're starting a, um, a business and you have four or five key people that are engineering, software, systems integration, and all of this, how do you think about the organization of the, the future that's where they're really co-creating, they're co-empowered, and it's not a functional command and control organization. How do you think about that in the future of organizations and how that may shift from what we've historically had with these functional or matrix organizations where you've got a CEO, then you, have you thought about that, how that is going to change? Or well, the, the, it's it, the organizational structure is going to, be moving more on a collaborative way, more so than it was back in early 2000 when people used to have, you know, cubicles, open office space where we could like, it's gonna be even more so. It's gonna be a hybrid type of collaboration, in-person and virtual type of collaboration and the CEO will share projects with the staff and the CEO will really be doing knowledge sharing more so than being seen way up there. That's really how I see it because the generation of workers, the generation of uh, professionals that coming up right now, that's what they are asking. They're asking for collaborative projects where they see everybody roll up their sleeves and produ producing results. That's really how I see it. No, I, I think you're right. So in, in kind of moving towards closure, what do you see um, your, your legacy um, when, you're, when you're done with all of this? You've, um, you started up as a, a child in Haiti, you started out doing service helping people internationally when you're 14 15 years old you're still doing service work helping entrepreneurs in africa to find and create businesses so what what's your legacy when all is said and done what would you like to see Demi? well as i i mean i started with the word with the word community i really want to see a community a world where entrepreneurs can achieve their dream. They can have their ventures, their initiative, create a better future for themselves where they can earn a living you know, based on their ventures, but also create a better world around them where they provide opportunities to their people, their world, and, you know, basically their community. That's, all, that's awesome. You know, I think um, there's, there's many people that have a, an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. 
And there is plenty of resources and plenty of capital in the world for great ideas with a management team that knows where they want to go and how to make it happen. So, you know, part of this is a shift of abundance to help entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. And we, you know, I want to thank you personally, Demi, for all the hard work that you put in and everything you do. And, um, you know, it's, it's great what you're doing. And um, I, I get to watch these young companies grow. Um, if our guests want to get a hold of you, how do they find, find you? Um, you can, uh, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, just if you Google my name, Dini, D-I-M-Y, Doresca, D-O-R-E-S-C-A, you'll find my LinkedIn profile. And uh, also, if you go on the University of Iowa website, you'll find, just put my name in the search button, you'll find my page where my email is there. So yeah, it, I'm, I'm, it's, it's easy to track me down. Well, thank you very much, Demi. This has been very insightful and a fun conversation. So thank you for your time and have a great day. Thank you. Such a pleasure to, to, to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.